Well, good morning again. Take your Bibles, if you would. Turn to Luke chapter number 16 and verse number 19. Today that is obviously the day that we recognize the achievements of our graduates, both high school and college. Today represents a crossroads for our graduates, for both the high school and college graduates, both face big decisions on the horizon. They will be making decisions that will affect the remainder of their lives. Decisions about further education or training or what career to pursue. But of even greater importance is to what are you going to devote your pursuits. Students in a MBA program at Harvard University were asked to create a strategic plan for their lives under the title, What Do I Hope to Achieve in Life After Graduation? The top three answers were wealth, reputation, and status. No one said anything about service. The story is told that a man on an ocean liner was leaning over the ship's rail, tossing something into the air and catching it. An onlooker asked, what are you tossing? He said, a diamond of great value. It's all I have in the world. The man said, aren't you afraid of losing it, tossing it over the water like that? No, he replied, I've been doing it for the past half hour and I've caught it every time. The man casually responded, but there might be a last time. The man laughed and he tossed it again, but this time he missed. And for a moment he stood in shock, and then he cried out, lost, lost, lost. You say, that story isn't true. Perhaps. But it does describe the way that many people live their lives. The ocean is eternity. The vessel they are on is called life. And the diamond is their soul. If you do not know Christ as their Savior, they are taking a great risk that every day will be their last day on earth. And if they should die without him, they will be eternally lost. How can people be so careless about their eternal destiny? I don't think for the most part that it's intentional. They just get so focused on the here and now that they neglect to think about the life to come. Every once in a while, perhaps the death of someone close to them or The newest disaster that claims many lives may make them think briefly about life, but soon they put it out of their minds and get on with their life. For example, after the first Gulf War in 1991, church attendance increased by 40%, but it didn't stay there. It went back down. We don't like to think about the reality of a place of eternal punishment. And we often hear the statement, I don't believe that a good God 
will send anyone there. That statement is based on error and inconsistency of the highest order. We never make the statement, how could a good judge sentence a mass murderer to death for his crimes? We don't say that because the judge judge is not responsible for the man being sentenced to death. His actions are. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 22, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. The story that Jesus tells us in verses 19 through 31 divides naturally into three parts. The comparison before death, the comparison at death, and the comparison after death. I would say, too, although some people call this a parable, it is never called a parable in the text. And no other parable does Jesus name anybody by name. And only two of the characters are named here, Lazarus and Abraham. Some of you will say, well, my text says that the rich man's name was Dives. Dives is merely the Latin word for rich man. His name is not given. Let's look, first of all, at the comparison before death. The contrast between these two men in this story could not have been greater. First of all, there is the billionaire. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. He wasn't just rich. He was very rich. His life was self-indulgent to the extreme. He dressed in purple as if he fancied himself to be a king. He wore only the finest linen undergarments. And he feasted every day on the finest foods. He was living, quote unquote, the best life now. There is nothing about his life on earth that indicated the terrible future that awaited him. The billionaire and the beggar. Verse 20 introduces the second character. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. He wasn't just poor. He was very poor. This man was sick. His body is covered with sores and ulcers rather than fine clothes. He was disabled. He was dependent upon someone to carry him from place to place. He was hungry, so hungry that he longed for the leftover from another man's table. Now here's something for you to think about. In Jesus' day, people often used old bread to wipe their hands on rather than napkins. And this is the bread that he longed to eat. Basically, he's asking for dog food. Don't be mistaken, though. The dogs that are being described that licked his sores are not your neighbor's poodle, but rather the wild street dogs that scavenged for food. Aside from the discomfort and the possible infection that this would cause, 
This was a disgrace because to a Jew, a dog was an unclean animal. The rich man could have easily assisted Lazarus, but he ignored him and went on about enjoying his recognition and his riches. Life was comfortable for him, and he no doubt felt secure. Some people tend to think that all you have to do to get to heaven is die. The rich man in the story is not outwardly an evil man. He was not a mass murderer. He was not a sexual predator. He was not deliberately harming anyone. He was just living for himself, oblivious to the poor man at his gate. And yet we find in him in a place of eternal torment. Clearly, Jesus does not teach that everyone will go to heaven. Here we need to proceed carefully, however, for it would be easy to jump to the conclusion that he missed salvation because he was not generous enough with his money and that he had no compassion on the poor. Such a conclusion would be true, but only half true. And like so many half-truths, it would be dangerously misleading. It would lead some to the correction that they might imagine that if he gave compassionately to the poor and the hungry, he could secure for himself a place in heaven. It is not so, of course. Scriptural explicitly assures that salvation is not by works, but by faith. Second, we see their comparison at death. There are two men on either side of the palatial gate. Both men died, and that changed everything, for they ended up on two sides of eternity. In verse 22, we read, And the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. When the rich man died, he was buried. But when Lazarus died, his body was probably carted away to the city dump and there burned alongside the trash. And although we're not told so, we can imagine that the rich man was given a glorious send-off, the finest funeral that money could buy. And while wealth may accord you the finest medical care and the most elaborate funeral, it will not keep you from dying. Even while his family and friends were planning his funeral, he had already arrived at his destination. And since there is such confusion today about what happens in death, I believe we need a brief explanation of the nature of death in relation to eternity. Death takes place when the spirit leaves the body. But death is not the end. It is the beginning of a new existence in a new world. When people die, only their bodies go into the grave. At the funeral, it is merely a physical shell that we see lying in the casket. The real person, the soul, spirit, has already departed into either a place of torment or a place of comfort, depending on that person's spiritual condition. When my grandson Gavin was a 
less than three years old, his papa died. We took him to the funeral, but at the funeral, we tried to keep him at the back away from the casket itself. And so Gavin asked a question. He said, Papa's in heaven, right? Yes, son, Papa's in heaven. He says, well, who is that in that treasure chest up there? Had a point, didn't he? When Christ arose from the grave, many scholars believe that he brought the saints from heaven's, from Abraham's bosom to the third heaven, to the realm where God lives. And since then, believers' souls or spirits go immediately to be with Christ, awaiting the resurrection of their body when he returns. Why is the rich man in this place? As I stated before, a surface understanding of this parable might indicate that the rich man missed salvation because he was not generous enough with his money, but that's not the case. The real reason for him being there was his disregard for the Word of God and because of his rejection of Jesus. Well, there's third, the comparison after death. First of all, one man found peace. Death is a great equalizer. As both men died and passed through death's portal, an amazing reversal occurred. Their situations were exactly reversed. The poor man died, and angels carried him to Abraham's side, also sometimes called Abraham's bosom. It speaks of God's presence. This is the place that the believers go when they die, or at least it was until the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible tells us now to be absent from the body. It is to be present with the Lord. One man found peace. The other found pen, man found punishment. The rich man also died, but no angels carried him into God's presence. But rather, verse 23 tells us that he finds himself in hell where he was in torment. The revelation of where each man ended up after death was a, an astonishing thing to Jesus' original audience. It shattered their long-held assumptions about wealth being a sign of God's favor and blessing. The rich were rich in their thoughts because they were good, and poor people were poor because they were bad. Well, I just want to share a few principles that this tells us. First of all, death is not the end of existence. C.S. Lewis was told about a gravestone that had an inscription that read, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and nowhere to go. Lewis quietly replied, I bet he wishes that were true. In Matthew, Jesus is recorded to have said, The believing will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. In Greek, the same word, eternal, is used to describe of each man. If eternal life is everlasting joy, then the opposite stands to reason that eternal punishment is also eternal. This place of eternal punishment is a place of 
conscious distress. This man was not dreaming. His hell was not on earth. He was conscious and aware of his surroundings. He could feel, he could speak, he could experience thirst, and he's, he was experiencing anguish. In verse 24, he pleads, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in this fire. Liberal Bible scholars have been telling us for decades that what the Bible says about hell is only symbolic. But I like what R.C. Sproul points out in his chapter on hell in the book Essential Truths for the Christian Faith. He said, if these things are indeed symbols, then we must conclude that the reality is worse than the symbol it suggests. The function of symbols is to point beyond themselves to something higher or more intense in a state of reality than the symbol itself can contain. That Jesus uses the most awful symbols imaginable to describe this place is no comfort to those who see them simply as symbols. Principle two, the choices we make in this life Fix our destiny in the next. Verse 24 says, And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus here to touch his finger to the tip of my tongue. At least part of the agony, I believe, that is described here is the agony of knowing that heaven exists and knowing you have missed it. Abraham responded to the rich man in verse 25 saying, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. By pointing to the good things, he's saying to the rich man, You have what you chose. You wanted the best life now and you've got it. So be careful what you give your life to. The third principle is there is no second chance. And besides all this, verse 26, between us and you a great chasm or gulf has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The great, the great gulf chasm that could have been breached while they were alive, was now uncrossable. The gulf is uncrossable because Scripture makes it clear that our time on earth is the place for our eternal decision. Once our eternal destiny is determined, it is determined what one does or does not believe on earth. There is no purgatory. There is no reincarnation. There is no chance for relief. There is no way out. After death, it is too late to repent. Principle number four. He says that he would have believed if he had had enough information. He said, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. 
and let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let they listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. We need to not miss the point that the rich man knew how to be saved. He knew that must, one must repent. He just never got around to it. But implied in the rich man's argument is that he would have repented if a special messenger from the dead had come to him. That seems to run counter to what the expo- those who are advancing the idea today that a, a signs and wonders movement is necessary. That there can be no effective evangelism without signs and wonders, without the miraculous. But it should be remembered that the primary use of miracles in the Bible was not to convince them of the truth by replacing the Bible, but rather to confirm the truth of the Bible. You should also notice the rich man is not partying with his friends. He is very much alone. He didn't say, I'm glad my brothers will be joining me here. What a wonderful time we're going to have together. In spite of all the country songs that you've heard to the contrary. In fact, the rich man expresses concern for his five brothers. And he asks that someone be sent back to warn them that their choices in this life have consequences in the next The rich man's argument was that if his brothers saw someone risen from the dead, they would believe. But that was just not true. The religious leaders had witnessed Jesus restore another Lazarus to life. And yet they had failed to believe him. In fact, they had become more determined to kill Jesus. Furthermore, just a few weeks after this, Jesus himself rose from the grave, and still they scoffed and rejected him. He is saying that the Moses and the prophets, that is the word of God, you are saying that the word of God is not enough. The rich man is saying, I didn't have a fair chance. I was not sufficiently warned. Otherwise, I would not be here. My destiny is God's fault, not mine. He is saying that God's warning through his word was not adequate and it was ineffective. While this verse teaches God will not give people supernatural signs and wonders to get them to repent, this verse also teaches that a person can avoid that if they listen to God's word and repent. They have all the information they need. They just need to heed the information that they have. Only one thing will prevent this man's brother from joining him. That is to hear the word of God and respond to it in faith. Now think of all the things that God has done. All the information that he has given for people to believe. He has first of all spoken to us 
in his creation. In his letter to the Romans, Paul wrote in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has spoken in creation. God is still giving us evidence. He has led people to discover DNA. And the invention of the electron microscope, which reveals that each individual is unique and complex. So unique and so complex, in fact, that evolution is not a reasonable answer. But God still continues to give evidence. And man continues to resist the idea of a creator. God has spoken in history. God has spoken in his word. And above all, God has spoken through his son. The writer of Hebrews says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through his son. Therefore, no one is without, without responsibility and no one has a valid excuse. I've loved the story and I've told it before because I love it so much. One day when Vice President Calvin Coolidge was presenting, presiding over the Senate, one senator angrily told another to go straight to hell. The offended senator complained to Coolidge as president and presiding officer and Coolidge looked up from the book he'd been leafing through while listening to the debate and he replied, I've looked through the rule book and you don't have to go. God has done everything necessary for you to go to heaven. It will be your fault if you don't make it. God has posted an enormous stop sign on the road to hell and it is in the shape of a cross. The road to heaven is paved with the blood of Jesus Christ and the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Choose wisely. Let's pray. Father, it's always a difficult thing to to preach about eternity and to tell people that they might not be making the right choice. So today I, I pray that they would understand my heart in this. It is with recognition that perhaps there's someone in this place that has not made that decision or has made the wrong decision on the way that they're going to live their life and how they're going to pursue the future. Whatever decisions our graduates make, help them to place you in the center of it. For them to know and know for sure that they have established a relationship with Jesus Christ that assures that they have a place in eternity with him. And that we don't live our lives and come to the end of our lives and realize that we really haven't given ourselves to following God. 
Father, I pray for each one here and the sound of my voice. I don't presume to know. In fact, everyone in this place may be saved. They may have already established a relationship with you. But there may be one who's never done so. And so, Father, I pray that you would help them to recognize this morning that they are a sinner just like all the rest of us. And that because of our sin, there is a, a great gulf established between us and you. And that gulf has been bridged by the cross. The penalty for our sin has been paid by Jesus. And that we must recognize our condition. And we must ask, accept that free gift of salvation that Jesus offers. Help us, Lord, that know that we're saved, to live in the light of that salvation. That it might change the way we live our lives, what we devote our days to. Father, we just pray that you'd guide and direct in this invitation, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.